All right, psychology nerds, welcome to Psychology and Stuff, the podcast out of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. Today, this is our second to last episode of the season, and we have a super fascinating guest in store for you. First, though, I want to tell you about a live episode we're recording soon in our season four finale. In response to the actual NFL draft, which is happening tonight as I record this, we're having a fantasy psychologist draft with three of our psychology and stuff all-stars. It's going to be a ton of fun. There will be food. Come by Mac Hall 237 on the UW-Green Bay campus for a game show style episode uh, on Thursday, May 2nd at 5 o'clock. See UWGB Psych on Facebook for details. Okay, so for today, we have a brilliant guest talking about the opioid crisis. Dr. Janet Riley has a doctorate in nursing practice from Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio, and is an associate professor of nursing and chair of the graduate nursing program in leadership and management at UW-Green Bay. She teaches pharmacology and public health nursing courses. We weren't able to meet in studio, so I did this interview over the phone just a few days ago. It's fascinating, and you're going to love it. Tell me a little bit about yourself and what you do. Yeah, well, I started as a public health nurse and school nurse for about 20 years. Um, And as you may or may not know, public health and school nurses provide a lot of health promotion and disease prevention, including for mental health diseases or epidemics like drug or alcohol abuse. Uh, When I finished graduate school, I became a certified nurse practitioner and prescriber, and I began to work in rural family practice and treat patients. Uh, for multiple reasons, who needed opioids, which were the standard of care uh, at that time in the 1990s. With my doctorate and in light of these nursing experiences, I then came to UW-Green Bay to teach public health nursing and pharmacology courses to registered nurses uh, who are seeking higher degrees. I still practice as a nurse practitioner in urgent care on the weekends and nights and keep my certification and just really enjoy helping patients. The last thing that's a little bit interesting is that I chair the Leadership and Management Nursing Graduate Program, which prepares nurses to lead quality improvement initiatives, such as ways to tackle opioid crises. And I'll give you some examples of those um, later on. Okay. Wonderful. Thank you very much. So um, one of the phrases I'm hearing a lot right now, whether it's in popular culture or just, uh, you know, in the news media or, or elsewhere is opioid crisis. Um, so I'm hearing that phrase uh, kind of all the time. Maybe we start out with what is it and how do we know it's a crisis? What's going on? Well, an epidemic is usually defined as a widespread occurrence of disease. Um, you can think about the plague or different infestations. Maybe West Nile virus is a more recent example of an epidemic or influenza or even the Ebola crisis that we had a while ago. In 1999 to 2017, there were approximately 20 to 22,000 deaths on average from opioid overdose. In 2017, that one number jumped from 22,000 to 70,000. Wow. So obviously it's it becomes a crisis when there's such a quick increase in the use of um, non-prescription or prescription opioids, which has happened since 2010. Uh, The White House itself said that this crisis has cost about uh, half a trillion dollars, which is an amazing amount of money, in 2015. And as recently as uh, two weeks ago, we have evidence of 
31 doctors, seven pharmacists, eight nurse practitioners, and seven other doctors across five states that were charged by federal prosecutors for illegal distribution of opioids, which amounted to like 350,000 prescriptions that they were writing for sex and for money. Um, so it's, it's kind of a current epidemic in lots of ways from these statistics. Yeah, that's, so, uh, that's incredible. Sorry, go on. And well, if I could, I'd like to step back a little bit and, and talk about some of the history. Uh, we've always used psychoactive substances, and there have been many crises, times across history when um, use has crossed over into overuse and abuse. For example, even 5,000 years ago, there were goddesses that were depicted with uh, a goddess of beer and a goddess of wine. Um, Sheskat was a goddess who was always depicted with marijuana leaves. Um, Demeter was the god of agriculture, and often he was depicted with wheat and poppy flowers. And you may or may not know, but there's one specific type of poppy flower that produces the source of morphine, which is opium and what's involved in all of our opium um, narcotics today. So then in the 1700s, you know, people started to get involved in industrialization, and they left their, their rural areas. And poverty became more of an issue when they came to the cities. The lifestyle was a little bit more expensive. They may not have been able to get jobs as they had thought. Gin and liquor distilleries became popular, and that's when the alcohol abuse issues first started. And then come along the 1800s, and there was this great new wonder drug called morphine. Um, it was used for asthma, headaches, uh, if you got the shakes after a night of heavy drinking. Um, gastrointestinal diseases, and even menstrual cramps in women. Benjamin Franklin used morphine to help with kidney stones. And as I said before, it was highly prescribed for American high-class women. With about 1 in 200 Americans addicted, it was given to women for what they called nervous disorders or menstrual cramps. And the more they used it, the more they got addicted. That time, interestingly, the treatment was to put these high-class women into camps and uh, to give them heroin, much like we now give methadone as a treatment to wean off of opioids. But it was not um, a penalty system. It wasn't a prison time. It was sort of a, you have a little bit of an issue, you're high class, let's move you over to this elite camp where you can heal over time and get off of your um, addiction to morphine or morphinism. Hmm. By the late 1800s, people really knew those dangers and all the medical textbooks and nursing textbooks started to describe, you know, a warning to overuse or overprescribe opioids. And then came along public health where we kind of understood improvements in sanitation. So there was less dysentery, dysentery excuse me, less diarrhea, less need for morphine because as you may or may not know, morphine kind of constipates you. Um, germ theory was accepted in the 1800s, and so there were other ways to treat infections other than prescribing just morphine. So we kind of got a little handle on it, but that was probably another time of what you would call an opioid crisis. Then comes 1910, and the Chinese immigrants started to pull in, um, and in their cultural way, they began smoking opium, opium dens, and it attracted some of the lower class poor uh, men from American society. And now things started to change. Rather than these being people in high society with lots of wealth who were treated in the country club-like camps, the society changed to these low-class, strong, 
independent young men, looking at them as addicts with a, with a penalty of jail time. Um, there was a Harrison Narcotic Act in 1914 that was almost like prohibition for alcohol, and that really reduced the number of um, opioid or um, narcotic addicted problems. Uh, they introduced methadone and addiction clinics were started. In the 1940s, World War II comes around and we have now a lot of people that are heroin addicted. And then the 1980s and 1990s, we suddenly started having more options in prescription opioids, OxyContin, synthetic opioids such as fentanyl. Um, and there was more and more increased prescribing of opioids and another wave of high deaths, so another time when there was a crisis. Um, 2010, they started to realize there's some more sinister reasons behind some of the drug addiction and drug overproduction and drug overuse issues, such as countries using them as warfare or gang-related production of um, synthetic opioids. And then that wave hit the crisis again in 2013. So you can see a lot of things. There have been a lot of crises across time. And the way that opioid addiction is treated kind of depends on who is addicted. Yeah, and I want to hear more about that in a, in a moment. I'm curious. So when we think about, you know, those stats you provided at the beginning about this big jump we've seen in the last few years, what do we have a sense for what's leading to that specific jump or that specific crisis? Yeah, um, let me start by talking a little bit about what opioids are. Opioids reduce pain. They contain um, alkaloids, which are kind of naturally occurring compounds, usually of vegetable origin, and they taste really bitter. Um, and they affect the body and the brain in many ways by binding the receptors. So it's kind of like a lock and key or a lock and password. Um, if you're thinking about computers these days, you can't get into any of your data without the password. So your body has the receptors or the data and uh, needs that password, which different things that float through your body called neurotransmitters, chemicals in the brain, provide. And I'll talk about that a little bit more later on. Um, but basically, when those neurotransmitters make it into the receptor, when the password gets into the computer or the key gets into the lock, it turns things on in your body, things like euphoria, just feeling really, really good, um, calming, kind of a sedating sense. You can dry up mouth secretions or if you have a runny nose. And if you're feeling anxious and nervous, like in the uh, 1800s when they were treating women for nervousness, It'll slow down those things, and it'll also slow down respirations, which is why they originally used it to treat asthma. Um, it can decrease the movement in your intestines, so it'll help if you have diarrhea by constipating you a little bit. Unfortunately, the more you use it, you become tolerant and dependency occurs. Um, where do opioids come from? There's three basic sources. There are prescriptions as we talked about already, um, OxyContin, Hydrocodone or Vicodin, Methadone, those are the most common opioids that are prescribed, and then there's also morphine. Um, there's a lot of risk factors for abuse and for overdose, and uh, risk factors for prescription overdose would include giving too many pills. Uh, you probably all can remember 10, 15 years ago, or even me as a prescriber 10 years ago, if you had a dental tooth pain or had a surgery or were in a car accident and you were given maybe a week or 10 days of 
opioid pills or codeine pills, and most people didn't use all of them. They tucked them, used them for a day or two and then tucked them into their cabinet for use later on. So we were getting too many pills. Um, another risk factor now is that we overlap the pills. We, different providers might give different codeine types or opioid types or interaction between pills. And then um, also rural areas, low income, tend to be a factor for abuse and overuse of um, prescription opioids. And then the other source of opioids are synthetic, such as fentanyl, which can be 50 to 100 times more potent than morphine. And the big issue with these is that they're often illegally manufactured. And to make more money from the illegal manufacturers, they'll mix them with doses of heroin or cocaine, which will give you a better high, but also a more likely to have an overdose and a death result. And then, of course, there's heroin, which is an illegal opioid. Right. So your original question was what led to the crisis, and I guess I can <laughs> yeah. answer that, you know, kind of by saying why do people use opioids? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. It's... It, it's kind of socially acceptable, you know, the stoicism of World War II, when you're in pain, you grin and bear it. That doesn't really exist anymore. It's okay to take medications um, to reduce your pain. As we talked about before, polypharmacy, where you might be taking a Valium or a Xanax or another medication that's going to interact, or even alcohol with an opioid, it'll make it more likely um, for you to get a better high, but also more likely to have uh, an option of an unwanted death. Um, as we talked about before, the illegal and unsafe drug manufacturing um, and by, you know, lacing with unpure alkaloids within that opioid can cause a lot of problems that give you that better high and that, that severe addiction. Um, there's also things that are changing in our society that support drug use. Um, Family values and the structures of families are changing. Um, there's a large emphasis on money, mm -hmm. which can lead to, you know, I want to be thin, so I'm going to use drugs because that will make me feel like I'm thinner or whatever the case may be. I don't feel great because I don't have as much money as that movie star I see on social media or my life isn't as great, so I guess I'll try using. Um, another really big thing that's related to those societal changes are ACEs. And you might be familiar with an ACE. Mm -mm. It's an adverse childhood event. So oh, okay. a child who's yeah, a childhood who's experienced alcohol or drug addiction, um, a parent in jail, a parent with mental illness, emotional, physical, or sexual abuse or neglect, or even if there's a household challenge like poverty or divorce or violence in the home, those things can make you much more vulnerable to addiction. So the re most recent research has indicated that 30% of people who use opioids and get addicted, or 30% of that addiction is due to genetic factors, like, oh, my parents use drugs, so now it's more likely for me to use drugs because my genes are a little bit different. But as um, we know, there's also an environmental factor, and with abuse, those ACEs or those adverse childhood events can be up to 50 to 75% of the environmental reason. Now, that's not saying that everybody who's had one of those events will be an addict or have a problem with uh, opioid use, but it is saying that most people who do have a problem with opioid use have one of those adverse childhood um, events. 
And yes, they're choosing to use, but they have a severely increased vulnerability to becoming addicted long term. So are there particular like pockets or areas where we're seeing things worse than others? Are there like some national pockets or regional or even local here? And, you know, I'm located in Green Bay. Do you know of any of any any pockets we're seeing? Sure. Um, the CDC, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention out of Atlanta, Georgia, which does a lot of our national data collection on crises, uh, prevention, as well as health education and diseases, mental and, and physical diseases, reports about 130 Americans are dying every day from opioid addiction. Um, oh, wow. There are packets by drug. So, for example, fentanyl, which is the synthetic opioid, in 2014 was extremely high in Florida, Virginia, Ohio, Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts. And there was kind of a magic line from Wisconsin straight down through Mississippi, and there was hardly any use to the west of us. Um, Hawaii was noted to have almost minimal zero, but again, that was in 2014. Um, <clears throat> things change a little bit. Um, Ohio still tends to have uh, a real problem. Dayton, Ohio is called the overdose capital of the nation. Oh, wow. And then um, to bring it down to more of a local level, in 2015, there were about 52,000 deaths from opioid overdose across America. In Wisconsin, there were 800. There is a um, database in Wisconsin called WISH, which reports the overdose death data. So I'll bring it down a little bit more locally. Uh, between 2000 and 2017, the average person who died from an opioid addiction was age 40 years old, which I found really interesting. I guess I had thought it might have been younger than that, um, with the highest amount of use being in the southeast uh, with 549 deaths in the south. So, again, now this is Madison area, 197 deaths. We rank number third in northeastern Wisconsin uh, with 152 deaths, specifically Brown County having 40 of those deaths. And then Western Wisconsin had about 83, Northern Wisconsin about 49. And there's also what's called high-intensity drug trafficking areas. They call them HIDTA for short. And in the state of Wisconsin, uh, those are Madison, Milwaukee, and unfortunately Green Bay is also listed in the top three. Okay. So, I mean, if you were to break that down, it seems more just cities uh, generally or, or more it urban is, areas. Yes. Yes, and, and there's many reasons for that. You know, it could be higher income. It could be lower income. Um, right. We have problems in Milwaukee in the suburbs where families are making more money and, you know, there's more discretional money available to teens or young people for experimenting with higher cost items like opioids. Right. Um, so at the same time, it could be in poverty pockets. Right. So you had said earlier kind of the treatment ends up depending a little bit on who is being addicted. And that, that kind of leads into a question about kind of what's being done about it. And it sounds like the answer, well, it depends who you are. Is that fair? Yeah. Well, across history, that's definitely fair that it depends who you are. Um, the first thing that's being done is prevention. Um, in nursing, mm -hmm. we talk about a primary, secondary, and tertiary care. So we do 
prevention as the first level to prevent the disease. Secondary as well, when you've got it, what can we do to make it better? And tertiary is this is a long-term problem. How can we like reduce the problem overall? So under prevention, there's obviously the need to raise public awareness. Um, there's efforts to improve prescribing strategies. Uh, for example, in certain states, prescribers like myself are required to take mandatory training of 20 hours of opioid uh, prescribing rules. Um, I'm licensed in Wisconsin and Michigan, and Michigan does have that requirement, so I had to take it for Michigan, but I was not required to take it for the state of Wisconsin. Um, there are other things that the Center for Disease Control does that relates a lot to prevention. Um, the CDC came up with guidelines for prescribing opioids for chronic pain in 2016. It was an incredibly laborious process where they did a systematic review of the literature and then they had comment from federal agencies and experts and uh, federal partners like the Food and Drug Administration and the Veterans Administration and multiple clinicians. They even asked for public comment on their supposed guidelines for prescribing opioids for chronic pain, and they received over 4,000 comments from the public. And it basically came out with 12 recommendations that most prescribers are now following. Um, in Green Bay, for example, one of our graduate students from our leadership and management program had the opportunity to meet with the governor and his task force in this fall related to opioid crises in the state of Wisconsin. And based off of that, they worked through their health system to come up with a standardized order set for all prescribers. So when you go to, to have surgery for your hand or if you're having a heart surgery, every provider, every surgeon is going to give you um, a standard order of pain management that's following the recommendations from the Center for Disease Control. So for example, rather than the 10 days to two weeks that we talked about that I would prescribe in the 1990s, it's now usually three days. Um, okay. There's alternatives being suggested like Tylenol in high doses. Um, and also more importantly, they're finding that using nursing measures rather than medication oftentimes manages pain very well. For example, another graduate student, student who works for Mayo Clinic uh, did her capstone project on key phrasing, which basically meant they called everybody who was going to have an elective surgery and said, some amount of pain is expected after surgery. We will do everything we can to help you manage that pain. And her study found that just by telling people before surgery that it's normal to anticipate some pain and not to expect to be pain-free it reduced their need for medication. Oh, wow. I think okay. that's really exciting. Um, right. other, things that nurses, other things nurses do include getting patients up and moving them, um, listening to music, treating nausea after surgery, which sometimes patients relate back to pain when really it's just the nausea from all the anesthetics that are in your system, um, connecting the patient to their family, talking with patients, distracting patients to think about other things. Those have all been found to be very effective other ways to manage pain, which are included in those CDC guidelines. Um, there's also a, a federal monitoring program. So for example, if I see Jane Smith and she's asking me for an opioid, I type in her name to a national database and it can tell me that how many other providers or physicians or nurse practitioners or 
physician's assistants she's been to in the last year to five years and how often she gets opioids. So it's a way for me, if I don't know Jane, if she's a new patient, to know, oh, she's been in four other clinics in the past three weeks and gotten opioids from each of them, be it a dentist or a pharmacy. Everything's in a centralized database, which really helps a lot um, from the right. provider's aspect. Hmm. Of course, there's the public health aspect in prevention um, that you need to partner with law enforcement. And the movement is to, to decrease the penalties for, for using opioids, but to increase the penalties for distribution and manufacturing of opioids. Um, there's also a Good Samaritan law, which says if you see someone who is in opioid crisis or in an overdose and you bring them in for medical care, both the victim who's being treated and anyone who brings them in will be protected from drug possession charges in order to get them treatment and save their life. Um, other things are community collaboration and whatever a community can do to try and prevent some of those adverse childhood events that we talked about um, beforehand. The secondary types of prevention that we would do uh, would be for someone who's, who's actually using, you might have heard of the Narcan program. Narcan mm -hmm. is a medication that can kind of reverse the symptoms of opioid overdose, and they're available with a lot of emergency medical technicians. Um, in some communities, they train and give Narcan to family members and friends of patients who they know are known opioid um, addicted users. Um, Equally somewhat controversial is a sterile needle program. For example, Green Bay has a program where our public health nurses in the nursing program used to go and collect um, and distribute, well, first we would distribute empty laundry detergent bottles because of their hard plastic surface and encourage populations of HIV drug users or opioid patients to use that to dispose of their needles and then we would provide an exchange where we would pick up a laundry detergent bottle of used needles and offer them um, clean sterile needles and that's an effort to decrease HIV and hepatitis and other diseases among the opioid population of users. As you can see that's that's a little controversial but it, it does have a right. good health outcome. Right. Um, the other thing that's really important is to collect data and analyze it. The Center for Disease Control does that on the number of opioid users. Local public health departments do that. And that is able then to help you predict how to treat and um, also where pockets might be where you can do more education or prevention. Um, there's also an opioid risk tool that a Dr. Lynn Weber created in 2005 that's used in a lot of clinics, which kind of points out this is a new patient I'm seeing, and if they fill out these four simple questions, I can tell that they might be more at risk if I give them opioids to become addicted, so maybe I'll choose a different type of pain management for them. Um, so that kind of medical screening is great, and then also the law enforcement working, as we talked about earlier, under prevention. And then long-term things, um, you know, to continue the medication-assisted treatment, like we talked about historically, um, now it's methadone or naltrexolone, with, but also important with the medication is to provide counseling and behavior therapy so that the addicted patient really has a change in the way their brain is functioning and um, their neurotransmitters, that lock and key chemical between the brain cells that are communicating are changed. And then societal change. Um, 
Let me give you two examples, if I can. Remember mm -hmm. we talked about Dayton, Ohio as being the overdose capital of the nation. Between 2016 and 2017, in one year, they were able to cut their overdose deaths in half. And they did that by the last thing we talked about, the societal change. They formed a community action team. They had over 200 individuals, 100 organizations. It was interjurisdictional, meaning it went across um, little township lines and also interdisciplinary. It involved health, it involved law enforcement, it involved social work, it involved schools. They were able to raise $11 million in grants for prevention as well as treatment of opioid users. And they became a single voice in the community, so they got a lot of media attention, gained um, public awareness, and did a lot for prevention and treatment. So I think that's a pretty significant uh, yeah, that's amazing. example of what can be done. Yeah. So as we kind of wrap up here, I'm wondering if, you, you know, given that there's a lot of people who've just learned an awful lot about this, what do you think is um, just the, the most important thing you want the public to know about all this? What's the take-home message uh, from this episode? Well, I think it's important to understand that those neurotransmitters that we started talking about, which go back and forth between the millions of um, brain cells, actually billions of brain cells in your your head and in my head, um, they're really containing the signals that help you act and behave the way that you do. Um, for example, dopamine is what gives you pleasure. Um, endorphins, you've heard of the runner's high, that mm -hmm. uh, you kind of get this good feeling after you complete a competition or something. Um, that is caused by the endorphins, which is another neurotransmitter, and those can be like 60 times stronger than morphine. Um, there's serotonin, which is like the don't worry, be happy kind of a chemical mm -hmm. that your body normally produces and releases. Norepinephrine is the drug that kind of makes you feel like when you're falling in love and that wonderful good feeling that you get. And then acetylcholine, which is like activating, energizing when you feel really high on the world because you've got a lot of acetylcholine pumping through your body. What's important to realize about addiction and in particular opioids is that those neurotransmitters that our body normally makes get replaced when you start using drugs. For example, that runner's high endorphin is replaced by morphine. So now the body is craving morphine to get that good feeling that it used to get from its own endorphins. The same thing with dopamine, the normal pleasure that you have in day-to-day -day activities from dopamine going from one brain cell to another is now can easily be replaced by cocaine to the point where the normal neurotransmitters in your brain no longer work and you only crave that severe um, need for the drug that you're using. Um, even acetylcholine, that energizing, is replaced by nicotine. So in many, many ways, I think the first takeaway is that when you use um, opioids and other drugs, it replaces what your body normally does. And it also structurally changes your brain so that you no longer make those chemicals on your own. And that's what gives you that severe need to crave. Um, if you give up the drugs, if you try to um, go without opioids once you're addicted, the side effects are unbelievably horrible. Um, many 
people have side effects from medications, but they're really horrific when you withdraw from opioids and other drugs. On top of those physical symptoms, you've got that terrible mental feeling that says, I feel horrible. I don't have any chemicals in my brain or passwords left to open up how to feel good, how to love, how to feel, don't worry, be happy. All those things are messed up. And your body basically says you're dying. You need help. What's going to make you feel better? How can you survive? Um, a really good analogy is if you've ever been swimming and you you get stuck under the water and you you know, would really be stuck there for a long time, and it's instinctual for you the same way that it is when you're drug addicted that you want to breathe, and you know you can't breathe water, and you know that that's not something you can do. That's, you know, you logically right. think that and know that, but it's still something that you would do because your body is so desperate to survive. Um, almost like I've had diabetic kids at camp who, because they were more active at camp, didn't have enough insulin and just were absolutely starving. And I would find them at night sneaking out of the cabins, going into the garbage to eat garbage because they were just that hungry. It was their survival instinct taking mm. over. Um, so I guess the second big takeaway would be that there really should be no blame in drug addiction. There's a lot of things in the environment that could have caused those adverse childhood events that made them more likely to become addicted. And it really is one of the toughest things. Um, for anybody, and I don't believe there's many of us who can say we've never tried nicotine, caffeine, um, alcohol, and then unfortunately some of us who have tried out um, drugs. So it, it's really kind of a leveler of the playing field that um, it's a substance not normal to the body, and for some reason some people get addicted and others do not. Wow. Thank you so much, Janet, for all of this. This has really been um enlightening and fascinating and of course a little scary and and a lot of things so um, but i really appreciate is there anything else you want to add before we finish up well i guess the, the two last points would be you can educate yourself and others to become more aware about opioids uh, the center for disease control and prevention go to cdc.gov and you can type in opioids or anything about drug addiction or anything about any disease or prevention of health for that matter um, there's also a free phone number, 1-800-222-1222, which provides free education um, about poisons or drugs, and you can call that anywhere in the nation toll-free. So I guess education is, is one final uh, item. Yeah. And then lastly, do what you can for a community to aim for a culture that's hostile to drug overuse and abuse, but yet accepting of uh, treatment for those that are afflicted with this disease and try to destigmatize cocaine, opioid, any type of drug use uh, or mental illness because it's really no different than a physical illness like high blood pressure or diabetes. Wonderful. Well, thank you so very much for everything. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you for having me. And that does it for this episode. Special thanks to our guest, Dr. Janet Riley. Our next episode will be our last of the season, and it's going to be a blast. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter to throw in some suggestions for how we run our Fantasy Psychologist Draft Party. Psychology and Stuff or Psych and Stuff on Twitter. Go there for additional information about psychology and stuff, ask questions, or even suggest an episode. 
I also want to thank our producer, Kate Farley, her intern, Preston Fisher, our podcast artist, Kimberly Fleece, and our fabulous intern, Shayla Warren. Until next time, keep being amazing. Mm-hmm.